Vida Abundante welcomes you to our SoundCloud page. We'd like to invite you to download our app, available in the App Store and on Google Play. Also, you can now follow us on Instagram under the name Vida Abu or on Facebook under the name Vida Abundante Cicero. What have been the first three aspects that we've been, uh, the first two aspects that we talked about? In chapter 2, verse 19, this is our base verse in the greater section of 14 through 23. But verse 19 says this. I'm just going to read it again, and you should have this memorized already. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and in steadfast love and in mercy. And I will read verse 20. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. So the first thing that is established here is that I will betroth you. I will marry you once more forever, a time frame. And then the first gift, I will betroth you to me in righteousness. Once again, here is God remarrying a person that didn't deserve to be remarried. Always have that in the back of your mind. That's why this metaphor is so important in the entire book. A wife that did not deserve to be loved was loved again and shown that love by a remarriage. It's, it's, it's kind of like that joke that always that husbands usually say about their wives. That they say, man, if I had the opportunity not to get married, I wouldn't make the same mistake twice. And you, they look at their wife and they're like, yeah, I shouldn't have done this. I felt forced to get involved, and I hope that's not any of you guys here. But I hear that a lot in a lot of circles. But this time, God says, even though you don't deserve it, even though you are uh, going after other people, even though your love is somewhere else, I will betroth you to me forever because now you have a new Heart. So one of the aspects that we learned about last week and the, in the previous weeks was this aspect of, of God's righteousness on a relational level. Now the relational level of God's righteousness is divided in three. The first one we spoke about was ethical uh, righteousness. What does that mean? Just to uh, recapture what we learned in the past, this ethical righteousness was the way we are to treat each other. So I'm putting all of this in the context of Israel but then it's going to apply to our modern-day context. So God establishes an a ethical righteousness with his people. What is he saying by that? Because I am righteous and because I am morally supreme and good, I give you this righteousness so you can be the same way with others. So one of the greatest aspects of that relational ethical righteousness is because God is good, we must be good with others. You, you understand that? So it's not just a, a ethical relationship with just me and the person, but it's you and everybody else. That's why Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, seek first the kingdom of God and its righteousness. So when you seek after God, you're also seeking after righteousness. And what that implies is you're not a solo Christian. You don't live righteously for yourself. You live righteously in the community of others. That's the beautiful dynamic that we have as a church, that all of us here, we all are different and have different temperaments, and some of us get on each other's nerves, and some of us, we just don't click, but that's the beauty of church, that it doesn't matter 
what football team you root for. It doesn't matter what kind of annoying habits you have. Because we are God's people, we are to demonstrate righteousness with each other. Even at the level of marriage. There's some things that your wife does that get on your nerves. There's something your husband does that get on your nerves. But you don't leave them on that basis. You stay faithful because you are to be in a, right, in a relationship of righteousness. And that's what God does, and that's what God gives. He gives this aspect of righteousness because, like we said from the beginning, this is a communicable attribute. This is something that we share with God. We can be righteous because God is righteous. So that's the ethical aspect of it. The forensic aspect that we spoke about last week is this whole concept of God establishing a law with his people. Because we are his people, and because the setting of Hosea is in the setting of Israel, an 8th century B.C. setting, he sets a law code way before that from the book of Leviticus, kind of what we spoke about earlier this day. There is a law code that God establishes with his people in order for him to judge righteously. So what does that say? That says that God isn't arbitrary. He doesn't judge arbitrarily. He doesn't wake up one day and say, oh, well, Rafita, I don't, I don't like the way he played the bass today in church. I'm going to pour my wrath over his life. Uh, I don't like the way uh, Petty uh, acted with, you know, uh, during the week, so I'm just going to pour out my wrath on, on, on Eric's life. And, and it's not that type of righteousness. God sets up a law code, and there is a law that the people have to follow. If the people follow that law code, God will show himself just. If the people don't follow that law code, God will show himself just. What does that mean? That you get what you deserve. You break the law, you pay the consequences. You uphold the law, and you don't pay consequences. You get righteousness given to you. You are blessed. You are prosperous, as the psalmist says, that he is prospered by following in the ways of the law. So that's a forensic aspect of how God deals with his people. So we don't have a, a moody God. We don't have a, 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 a bipolar God. God is righteous because he establishes a law code for his people to live by. And how does that apply to us in our modern context? We'll get to that in a little, in a little while. But I just want to set that context because that's what God is doing in Hosea. And that's why he's remarrying this woman once again. Hosea is remarrying a wife that doesn't deserve to be married. But when he remarries her, there's obviously going to be parameters. Like I mentioned last week, in the marriage, there are parameters. You don't flirt with another man. You don't flirt with another girl. You have parameters in marriage. And if you break those parameters, you have to suffer the consequence for those parameters. Because it's a forensic relationship. That's why you have to be righteous in your relationship. If not, you suffer the consequence. So that forensic aspect helps us understand as we move forward this third and final aspect of God's righteousness. And it deals with a specific group of people. And that's going to translate so well into our modern day context that I really want to make sure you get this. So the first aspect was an ethical aspect. The second aspect was a forensic aspect. And the third aspect of God's righteousness is theocentric. Ethical, forensic, and theocentric. What does that mean? It means God over his people. 
I've mentioned this prior in previous uh, preachings, uh, but God is the governor, the king, the president, if you may, of Israel. They are under a theocracy. God is their supreme authoritative governor. No other rule exists other than God. There isn't any other person that the people must submit to other than God. That's why in the, in the Ten Commandments we have the first uh, law that is established, you shall have no other gods before me. No one else will substitute God. And so God deals in a specific way with a specific group of people. That's what I want you guys to understand because it's going to translate into our modern day culture. In this context, however, we see that God is dealing with Israel. Eighth century Israel and even prior to in the, in the 14th, 15th century with Israel at their initiation. This is God dealing with a specific group of people. God isn't dealing with the Egyptians. God doesn't deal with the Persians. God doesn't deal with the Assyrians. God doesn't deal with anyone else. God deals specifically with a group of people, and in this case, it's Israel. So this is very important for us to understand because we can get the ethical part right, we can get the forensic part right, but we got to get this, this theocentric part right because we're speaking of a particular group of people. And in our, in our New Testament time, that means you and I. We're not just some random group of people. We are specific groups of people. The way God chose Israel to be his, separate from everybody else, is the way God is choosing his church to be separate from everybody else. And in this theocracy, we are governed by God's right hand, his will, his power. The Israelites knew it as a cloud that governed over the tabernacle, and Moses would speak in the tabernacle to God and receive instruction in order for God to execute his commandments upon the people. This was God dealing with his people. But his people disobeyed. So this, is, this becomes more real in what we've been studying in Hosea. The people continually disobeyed their God, and they fell short. Paul says, everyone has fallen short of the glory of God. And the people of God, the precise people that God showed himself powerful to, were the people that constantly disobeyed. And we went through it, almost 1,400 years of constant disobedience. This is Israel turning their back on God. However, because it is a theocracy, because God governs his people, because God spoke promises to his people, he must keep himself faithful to those promises. So at the beginning, he punishes, he corrects, he brings his wrath down on his people, but then there, become, there is a remnant that stays faithful. We saw this in, in chapter 1 of Hosea, where Israel was faithful uh, some of the Israelites were unfaithful, and then some, a small group, were faithful. And they were faithful enough that God showed himself merciful to them. So that becomes important in this theocracy concept. There is a disobedient group, but there's also a remnant in which God binds himself to, to become faithful to them and gives himself wholeheartedly to them. This is what Paul says in Romans 11. These people disobeyed God, 
They abandoned their, their, their national identity as being people under God, but that faithful remnant remained true. And I want you guys to read this just so you guys can get the weight of this. So from Hosea, jump to the book of Romans real quick. I want you to see this and, and, and get the weight of it. And I just love hearing when uh, Bible pages turn. Romans chapter 11. And if you're already there, just keep moving the pages just so it can sound cool. Romans chapter 11. Look at the first, I'll read a couple of verses from the beginning. It says, I ask then, has God rejected his people? And here Paul is asking about a specific group of people. Who is he asking about? Israel. Who have we been talking about this entire time? Israel. So Paul says, I ask then, has God rejected his people? And what does Paul say? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says? Elijah, how he appeals to, to God against Israel. Here, here Paul is putting the prophet Elijah up against himself. Elijah complains in verse 3, and, and Paul says he, that he says this. Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left. And they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. There's that small remnant of people that remain, remain faithful to, to God. Verse 5. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Now I want you to jump to verse 11. So I ask, here Paul again, so I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means, rather through their trespass, salvation has come to who? The Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. Those are some harsh words right there. Go all the way down to 18. Do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. If you want to read 11 through 18, when you get home, read it. I, I encourage you to do so. But what's Paul talking about here? So this is how we begin to understand and translate that to our modern con context. God deals in Hosea chapter 2 with a specific group of people. And this group of people, Paul says, has God rejected them? And you and I can say, uh, prior to understanding uh, the verses 14 through 23... We, we know God did deal with them, and God did walk away from them, and God did put, uh, put them to the side. But now God has come back to them. And when we close off the section, it's, it's a beautiful closing in verse 23 of chapter 2 of Hosea. I will have mercy on my people once more. But in their disobedience, there was still a small group of people that remained faithful. And that's what Paul is talking about. He says there was a greater number that, that were unfaithful to God, but God doesn't reject us on the basis of this big group. He remains faithful to this small group. And then Paul makes it very clear for us now. So what does this mean for us? Paul says, now because they were unfaithful, Israel, and you and I after studying three months in the book of Hosea have understood that Israel was very unfaithful. And the word that Hosea uses to describe Israel 
is that harsh word of whoring after other gods, a very strong word that was Israel. And so Paul puts it in our language, because they did that, you and I were grafted in. That's why you got to read verses 11 through 18 where, where it talks about the olive tree and the branches and how God broke off some branches. But then the Gentile church, you and me, because I don't think anyone's from Israel here. Some people have confused me to be an Israelite by the way I look. But, but other than that, no one else is from Israel, I'm, I'm supposing here. And we have been grafted into this olive tree. Now we can participate together with the overall blessings of God's people. So now, God's dealing with people is still very much in effect. We are still in a spiritual theocracy. So even though we live democratically in the United States, even though we still have to submit under our governors and our presidents and our governing authority in the United States, if we like it or not, if we like our president or not, the Bible still calls us to submit to him. However, our spiritual lives are governed theocratically. We are not our own gods. We don't govern ourselves, even though that's what we like to do. We don't tell, we don't say this is my life and I live it the way I want to live it. Even though we do say that, if we are sons and daughters of Christ, of God, we are led by God. We submit to the authority of God. And so therefore, all of these, all of these aspects of God's righteousness apply to the church, to us. We live ethically with each other because God shows himself righteous to us. We, we abide by God's spiritual law over our soul. And you may ask, what is God's spiritual law in the New Testament? Then I would just say, read the New Testament and find out for yourself. But we abide for, under that law, under God's law in the New Testament, because he still deals with his people one-on-one. -on -one. There is still this obedience factor that needs to happen for the people of God. There is still this new heart that needs to be established before one can come after God. And so we are still very much in a theocracy, even though it may be a spiritual one for the moment. But that just proves and shows us now that God, on this theocratic aspect of his righteousness, is dealing now with a specific group of people where you and I fall into that category. The covenant relationship with God and his people demands obedience and it becomes our way of living. We are to live righteously because God is righteous and this becomes our normal, moral, ethical standard. We live this way because God demands it from us and the way God deals with us is in the same way. Righteously. He acts good, and what God does is good. So always remember that. Always remember that we don't define good. As human beings, we have this tendency to say, this is the way I think things should be. And this is the way I think good is. You got to understand this. 
we don't define good. We have a finite understanding of what good is. We may think good to be some basic concept. But God defines what good is. And, and, and you've got to really understand this. God is good, and whatever God does is good. Even if we think it is not good, it doesn't matter what we think. God says, I do this and everything, and all my actions are righteous and good and just, and even though we don't think it's any good, it's good to God, and so therefore, it is good. And so the way God deals with us, you and me, is righteously. So sometimes we like it, and sometimes we don't. But we are in God's hands. And there's no better place to be than in God's hands. So this theocentric aspect of God's righteousness becomes the leading factor in the people of God. And that's why I really wanted to spend some time on this in this uh, verse 19 of chapter 2 of Hosea so that we understand why God is marrying Israel in this concept. Why is he betrothing his wife once more? Or, or in the metaphorical sense, why is Hosea getting married once more to this wayward woman? Because God is good and he's righteous and he deals with his people. He does not give up on his people. So that... That becomes our driving factor as Christians. That though we stumble, though we fall, though we commit mistakes, grievous mistakes, God is still faithful to his people. Do we suffer the consequences for those mistakes? Yes, we do. Do, do those consequences hurt? Yes, they do. But God is still faithful with us. Though the sorrow may come for the night, joy comes in the morning. That's who God is for his people. And we have to really get that and understand that so that we understand this acting of God in our lives. This righteousness of God being theocentric, is, it, it deals with us on this ethical level too. But then it points us to salvation. The way God saves his people is by his prerogative. God makes a way for salvation. God designs a plan for salvation, and his plan is righteous. The, the prophets of, of the Old Testament, like, like Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 51 and Isaiah chapter 54, they speak of a coming liberator, of a coming Messiah that will save his people and that will show himself to be righteous before his people. And we know that to be Jesus Christ. I want you to get this, this, uh, this concept a little more. Go, to, go with me to Isaiah chapter 45. I'm using a lot of Bible today because I, I want to jump around a lot today because I want you to understand this as we sum up God's righteousness. So the way God governs is foreshadowed in the book of Isaiah chapter 45. And look at what he says. The, the, this is, this is our God. Isaiah says in, in chapter 45, verse 9 and on, Woe to him who strives with him who formed him. What does that mean? Woe to him who is fighting with the creator. A pot of earthen vessel, pots, 
You guys understand that? The creation is arguing and fighting against the creator. That's basically what Isaiah is saying. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or your work has no handles? Woe to him who says to the father, what are you begetting? Or what is being born? Or to a woman, with what are you in labor? Thus, verse 11, thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel and the one who formed them, ask me of the things to come. Will you command me concerning my children and the work of my hands? God is saying, are you the creation asking me how I do my work? Is that how it works? The answer is no. Because God is creator we are created, so we conform as New Testament believers to his moral standard, to his righteousness. His characteristic is the highest moral standard for human conduct, and that's what we abide by. His punishments and his judgments over, his, over the sinful people are part of his righteousness. But God judges and then brings mercy. If God was not just, he would not have to punish sin. But because God is divinely righteous, there needs to be a punishment for sin. Sin needs to be vanquished. As we shared in the Lord's Supper today, what did, what did I speak about from the Levitical system? The scapegoat needed to be sent out of the camp, and the other goat needed to shed blood. Why? Because of the problem of sin. There's sin. And you and I know that if we're really hardcore with ourselves, you and I can admit, yeah, you know what, I'm, I'm sinful. There's things that I think about that are not right. There's things that I do that are not right. And those very things are what God is dealing with. And by the blood of Christ have been wiped away. I've been sent out of the camp. And so there's this problem of sin, and if God doesn't deal with that sin area in our lives, we're not going to do it, right? We, we feel comfortable when we sin, and we don't like it when people try to judge us. That's why people don't want to come to church. No, they're going to judge me for, for showing up. And it's not that we want to judge people. It's we want to say, brother, there's sin in your life. This has to be dealt with. We can't just be like, it's all good, bro. Don't worry, eventually you'll change. You know, we'll give it another 20 years, see how it works. Eventually you'll come around. No, brother, we're here to help you, to lift you up, and to call you out. That's what the beauty of the community of God should be. That's what we should really be. We should not be gossipers. We should just be people that are confronting people with truth, with love. Not just pointing the finger. But that's the righteousness of God amongst his people. And so because God is just, he has to deal with sin. But then he vindicates those who have repented. Those who are repentant and come to him by faith are vindicated by his mercy. His righteousness has provided salvation to his heirs. Now God opens the door for salvation and he plants the way of salvation. Salvation comes through a Messiah. Jeremiah chapter 23 says, the Lord is our righteousness. The one who will save his people is righteousness. So it, it even becomes his, his nature, like it, get, it becomes a substitute for his name. He is righteous. He is the Lord of righteousness. And he is the one that is going to save us. 
Matthew interprets that in the New Testament saying, he is Emmanuel. He is God with us. The savior of our souls and our beings, the one who is to redeem his people, is provided by God. God provides a salvation by crushing his son, as Isaiah 53 says, and we'll read that in a little bit. He crushes his son in order to pay for the sin of his people. That's a theocratic concept. He deals with Israel in the Old Testament through a Levitical system, but now he's dealing with us through the best sacrifice ever, which is Christ. And Christ becomes that propitiation, that substitutionary atonement for our lives. When we belonged to be on the cross, it was Christ who took the place. And who did that? And who designed that? God. Because he is righteous. And because he knows that we could not offer our very own righteousness. We couldn't deal with ourselves. We couldn't become righteous in ourselves. We couldn't keep abiding by the law and trying to do what the law says because as Israel's failed, we would fail. We can't be good on ourselves. Although we may do good things here and there, but that is not translated into ethical, moral, and forensic righteousness. It needs to be in the way of God's doing. There's a lot of people that will always say to you, that always tell me as knowing that I'm a pastor of a church, you know, I, I don't kill, I don't cheat, I do my taxes right, I don't cheat on my taxes, I don't cheat on my wife, I don't cheat on my husband, I, 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 I give to the poor, I, I give my thanksgiving away by going out and doing all these good things, I, I give clothes on, and, and toys on Christmas, I do all of these good things. Are you expecting me to understand that God is still going to judge me? And, and, and even though in our nature we say, well, no, man, you're pretty cool. That's pretty good. I think you're good. And even though us, we would say that, the Bible says no one is good, man. No one is good. And then we repeat what Paul says in chapter 3 of Romans. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. There's a standard of righteousness. And the way to achieve that standard is by obeying the righteousness that, that God has provided for us in salvation. There's only one way to achieve righteousness, and that's through Jesus Christ. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30, he is our righteousness. So therefore, the metaphor with the wife and the husband in Hosea, he buys her back because he is righteous. His wife that Hoard after other gods and after other people, after other men, has a change of heart, as God says, and then she is declared righteous. So the reason why Hosea mentions this in verse 19 is because he wants us to know that God is righteous in everything that he does, and because he is righteous, he remains faithful. To those he loves. Even though we didn't deserve it. She didn't justify herself. She has a new heart and is justified by God. She doesn't pay for her own freedom. God pays for her freedom. In this case, Hosea pays for her freedom. We'll read that in chapter 3. She had to be bought out of slavery. 
Gomer was enslaved in prostitution. She had to be purchased out of that. And did she do it? No. Hosea did. God pays for the freedom. Therefore, in the New Testament, in our current context, because we are God's people, God does the same thing for us in giving his son as a substitution for us and providing his righteousness on the cross. How were we ever going to stand before God if we were wayward people? Well, God provided his righteousness in Christ, and then the beauty of God's righteousness in Christ on the cross, what happens at that very moment, it isn't just for us to cry about after we see the movie The Passion and be like, oh my God, that happened, Jesus, oh, I'm so sorry. Oh, and it isn't for us to just shed tears. It's for us to understand that at that very moment, righteousness was available for you and for me. So the Bible brings this clarity in, and, and the theologians call it imputation. Christ's righteousness is imputed in you. It wasn't your righteousness, it's Christ's righteousness. And that is what satisfies God. And now we are to live righteously because he is righteous. At the end, Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, I have no righteousness of my own, but only the righteousness of God that depends on faith. I couldn't do this on my own. I need God. And as people of God, every day of our lives should be a constant realization that we need God. That we need to be forgiven, but that we can run to the arms of a faithful redeemer who judges righteously. Amen? So next week, we're going to go into the other attributes. And as I promised, we have finalized the attribute of righteousness. And by now, you guys should all be experts on righteousness. A test will be given next week. Let's stand up. A test with Bible verses will be expected from you. But God is good. Remember that. God is, it's not just a, a cheap saying that Christians say. God is good. And everyone says all the time, all the time, God is good. It's not just, it's because we know God is good. It's, it's just, God's righteousness is amazing. So let's just end on a thankful note. Let's just be thankful to God. Thank you for providing righteousness for me. Amen? Father, as your creation and you are creator, a righteous Creator, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Because you have grafted us in to your people. We don't know why, we don't know how, we don't know exactly what you saw in us. There's nothing good in us. But your righteous faithfulness and love brought his people into the promise. And so, Father, give us the strength at this day and age and this context that we live in to be people of righteousness, to be righteous as you are righteous. As Leviticus says, to be holy as you are holy. We honor you with all of our heart, soul, and mind and strength, and we give you glory in Jesus' name.